Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a new zero-trust draft strategy juices the government's cyber posture. It's definitely a major paradigm shift for the federal government to go from the understanding that the perimeter was your defense to a zero-trust environment in which you assume that the hackers have already made it into the system. The new Navy Secretary's Get to Know You Tour takes him to an unlikely location. Bath Ironworks is probably the most fragile, if you will, of our construction shipyards. And bots save one agency thousands of hours of work. A person who was not a software developer had an idea for how to automate a particular task that she saw happening around the agency. That's the big bang solution that really helped us save tens of thousands of hours. It's Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon at four o'clock, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Veterans Affairs is on the edge of using augmented reality headsets in medical procedures. The director of the VA's National Center for Collaborative Healthcare Innovation, Thomas Osborne, tells FedScoop the VA's been using AR for more than a year to use large files like MRIs and CT scans. Osborne says the speed of 5G wireless technology will drive the technology's use in the operating room. Osborne will tell you more on Monday's Daily Scoop podcast. Half of the CFO Act agencies in government are on track in their transitions to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract from the General Services Administration. More than 200 agencies still have contracts out under networks and other contract vehicles that will expire. The original deadline for the transition was March 31st. Some senior military IT leaders have concerns about expanding the Air Force's software platform. Jackson Barnett is tech reporter at FedScoop. He's writing about the concerns at FedScoop.com. Jackson, welcome. What are the concerns and who's raising them? Well, first, thank you so much for having me, Francis. Good to be with you. Um, Really, it comes down to communication. Um, I'm sure you've heard this many a time. I'm sure our listeners have, have heard it many a time, but there's really no such thing as absolute security, and it's all about kind of understanding and mitigating risk. So when it comes to how a platform like Platform One, which is used to create software, communicates how it mitigates risk. Um, There's clearly some disconnect between uh, officials in the Air Force and officials in other services. So kind of broadly speaking, what what I've been hearing from people in the Pentagon is it starts with understanding the documentation around security and how Platform One uses uh, risk mitigation and how it uses things like red teams and other tools that are not as widely used within the Pentagon. And I think a lot of it comes down to some of the the novelty too around the technology of Platform One. Yeah, my takeaway from this story is not that there's a security problem with Platform One. You write several officials who have asked for Platform One security documentation said they were not provided with any. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means they haven't gotten it. You quote Rob Slaughter, who's the former director of Platform One, saying they just don't have the homework in the right format. What did he mean by that? A lot of it comes down to kind of, you know, the, the formats that different databases can, can withhold and, and how the Pentagon's processes and programs around mitigating cyber risk have to evolve to understand new means of mitigating cyber risk. Uh, Platform One is a, is a fairly new office um, within the Air Force. Uh, you know, early 2020, we're talking here, um, is when it was, was kind of got off the ground. Um, so a lot of it just comes down to technology is changing, and you know if Platform One can get their you know quote unquote homework in, in the right format, I, I 
I would assume that officials would be able to have a little bit more trust once they're able to see that and once they're able to understand it in a language that they can that they're really familiar with. You point out that each of the services has its own software development platform, Platform One in the Air Force, Black Pearl in the Navy, and the Army Software Factory that lives at Army Futures Command uh, mm -hmm. in the Army. Is there talk about consolidating those or sharing work or any of that, Jackson? Well, yeah, no, that's that's actually a, a really good point. And, and reciprocity is kind of the, the coin of the realm here. And it's uh, something that I would say is, is often talked about as being if you graft it out in kind of the, the top corner of something that's very important but very difficult to do. Um, so reciprocity talks are, you know, have absolutely been going on. And one of the things that I've, I've heard from officials is that ensuring that understanding how Platform One understands and mitigates cyber risk is kind of one of the key things as reciprocity is discussed and as reciprocity um, is achieved on making sure that everyone's on the same page on, on, on cyber is kind of the most critical point of that. Jackson Barnett, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. You can read more about that story and all of today's headlines at fedscoop.com. Coming later on the Daily Scoop podcast, the new Navy secretary takes a trip to Maine, but it's all about business. First, though, the new Zero Trust draft strategy from the Office of Management and Budget includes input from the U.S. Digital Service and GSA's FedRAMP. Federal CIO Claire Martirana says the strategy shows agencies should, quote, not automatically trust anything inside or outside of their perimeters. Chris Kemiski, CEO at Kemiski Strategic Solutions. He's former acting undersecretary for management at the Department of Homeland Security. Chris, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's your takeaway from this draft strategy? What do you see here that's important? And is there anything that you didn't see here that you think is important? Welcome. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's definitely a major paradigm shift for the federal government to go from the understanding that the perimeter was your defense to a zero trust environment in which you assume that the hackers have already made it into the system and that you've got to verify everything is really going to be a big shift for the federal government away from you know the previous strategy. Uh, I think that you know there are foundational efforts that have taken place in the past, like uh, continuous diagnostics and mitigation. The Einstein program at DHS is another example of that, where it was really just once you got into the system. Uh, you were authenticated and you were able to just move. And we found that with the o OPM uh, breach in 2014, that was a real weakness with the advanced persistent threat and the ability of the adversary to move seamlessly across a network and really have access to all uh, the data was a real problem. My colleague John Hewitt-Jones on fedscoop.com writes, top priorities identified in OMB's new strategy include consolidating agency identity systems, combating phishing, through strong multi-factor authentication and treating internal networks as untrusted. It also spells out the need to encrypt traffic and strengthen application security. Those are all things that the government has been working on, maybe ad hoc's not the right phrase, but has been working on in pieces for a long time. Is there something about this strategy in your view that codifies that, that hardens it, matures it, or something like that, uh, something along those lines, Chris? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, with the EO uh, that President Biden signed in May, it really does pull together, I think, a lot of the best practices that have been on the landscape for some time. And you know, looking at uh, you know the the changing environment for, away from you know managing your own network to really using a cloud-based approach um, is part of this. And when you add into that, uh, you know, the the explosion of uh, remote work as a, as a result of the pandemic. 
you really have all the you know the elements there for having to do something different around security. And so a, a big part of this is identity. You know, being able to say, you know, as CDM has said in the past, you know, who's on your network, what devices are hanging off of there, but really adding layers of data security and application security on top of that. It's a draft strategy, so obviously comments will be made and OMB will consider those comments, release a final strategy. But if this is it or close to it, Chris, what will agencies have to do differently than they're doing today or what should they do differently than they're doing today to really execute on this? Yeah, that's a good point. And as we've spoken about in the past, this is going to be a heavy lift for agencies. Um, you know, the, the, the technology modernization fund uh, infusion of a billion dollars as part of the one of the uh, uh, CARES Act uh, uh, appropriations gives agencies an opportunity to start to do some things around modernizing their systems and replacing legacy technology. Uh, that's going to be a big part of this because you really can't run a zero trust uh, architecture without updating, you know, the, the fundamentals. And so it's, uh, you know, making sure the agencies, you know, have a strategy in place as step one. Uh, but over time, there's going to be a lot of change and a lot of uh, maturation that's going to have to take place in identity in application development and how they use the cloud. And that's going to be a lot of system engineering and it's going to cost them some money. The Federal Chief Information Security Officer, Chris DeRusha, says we welcome feedback on how we can refine the strategy to best advance federal cybersecurity. What does constructive feedback on this strategy look like, Chris? I think it, it, a lot of it has to do with what are the impediments and hurdles that may present themselves as part of this. Uh, I think they acknowledge in the strategy itself that this is a multi-year uh, kind of an approach. It's going to take a lot of heavy lifting, uh, particularly for some agencies that are not as sophisticated with their technology. And as we know, the weakest link can often be the one that uh, is the problem uh, in, in all of this. So I think that there's a recognition from OMB and, and Chris and his team that uh, CISA is going to have to be a major player in this discussion in helping agencies uh, get to a place where they're able to take advantage of zero trust um, you know, systems and architecture. Uh, many of them are not in a position to do that today. Two questions about what comes next as a result of this. You mentioned this builds on President Biden's cyber EO uh, from a while back. What builds on this at some point in the future, do you think, Chris? I think that what it looks at are, are issues like um, TIC 3.0. You know, they, the OMB has uh, recommendations for how agencies pivot to the cloud, uh, since that is uh, another major part of this. I think they're going to be building on uh, you know, the issue of identity and authentication, uh, even you know the most basic kinds of things that we've talked about in the past, like multi-factor authentication, you know, getting a code like you would from the cable company when you're trying to access your account are things that most federal agencies don't do today. So I think that there's an internal facing component to it, but also I think the public is gonna clamor for a much more customer centric and user friendly interface with federal agencies in the future. And they're going to have to be ready for that. And the other forward-looking piece of this that I wonder about, does this codify hardened, mature CIS's position as the point person, as the leader of uh, federal civilian cybersecurity, and maybe drive the entire government closer to CISA really being the center of all of that, that gravity? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it's going to do. As we've watched this evolve over the last four or five years with uh, congressional acts authorizing additional monies and authorities uh, for CISA, uh, it really hasn't been until the last year where you see, uh, you know, they're seen as a, a major player in the space and as a, an assistive agent for agencies as opposed to, you know, just somebody lurking in the background uh, as another federal agency. So I think that uh, the tools that are being developed, 
uh, and the resources that are being pumped into CISA will make them uh, really at the centerpiece of, of much of the implementation around federal civilian. Uh, final thought, we've mentioned a couple of times in this conversation, this is a draft strategy. Did you see anything there that you think that might not make it into the final strategy or that might look dramatically different in the final strategy, Chris? Yeah, I think some of the elements uh, discussions around encryption, uh, they discuss uh, you know data in transit. Uh, but one of the things that one of the things I think that we'll have to take a harder look at is you know data at rest as well. You know what are the data sets that agencies have in place today, and even though they're not you know maybe transmitting it or sharing it with our other government entities, it has to be protected. And so I think there'll be more discussions around data protection. Former acting undersecretary for management at DHS, Chris Kemsky. You can read more about the zero trust draft strategy at FedScoop.com. Coming up on today's Daily Scoop podcast, time-saving bots at the National Science Foundation. The CIO there tells you how many thousands of hours they're saving. The Daily Scoop podcast lineup is available ahead of time on Twitter every day. You can follow the show at Daily Scoop Pod. The new Secretary of the Navy, Carlos del Toro, is making the rounds of the facilities he has to make decisions about the future fleet. Brian Clark is Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute. He's former Special Assistant to the Chief of Naval Operations. Brian, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. Other than the fact that he was invited by two sitting members of the United States Senate, Brian, what do you think is behind Secretary del Toro's early journey to Bath Ironworks and presumably to the other shipyards around the country that serve the Navy? Welcome, Brian. Well, thanks a lot, Francis. Uh, it's great to be on here in one of your early podcasts, and congratulations on the podcast. I'm really excited to listen to it. Bath Ironworks is probably the most fragile, if you will, of our construction shipyards because it's uh, it builds the, the destroyers. It built the Zumwalt destroyers, which got canceled after three ships. Um, they're, in fact, not even going to be able to finish the Lyndon B. Johnson, which is the third of the Zumwalt. It's going to get sent down to Ingalls and Pascagoula to get finished. So they're they're always on kind of the edge of not being able to sustain uh, the workload that keeps their workforce employed. And I think Secretary Del Toro Gum out there was trying to trying to you know, show some uh, support and some resolve to say we are going to continue to build the destroyers that are really the backbone of this shipyard's uh, you know, future you know, uh, sustainability. They're also looking at maybe building uh, the frigate when the frigate goes to a two shipyard uh, competition. Um, unknown whether they're going to really fare very well there. They are. Their cost structure is a little more difficult because, uh, you know, they do have unions. Uh, they are a small shipyard. They can't you know, take advantage of scale and a right to work state like a place like Ingalls can. This is the worst possible time, though, potentially to lose yeah. a shipyard because we don't have enough. It, if Bath were fully at capacity, we still don't have enough capacity is what you and others have been telling me over time. Yeah, absolutely. The, the uh, construction shipyards have right-sized themselves to build the, you know, the amount of ships that the fleet or the Navy currently demands, which is, you know, at most nine or ten ships a year, normally more like six or eight. <laughs> uh, and so, you, you know, getting some more capacity out of them is really difficult. The Navy tried to go to three submarines per year, and the shipyard said, we really can't do it. You know, so they, they're just, you know, barely able to keep up with two. Uh, and they're doing a great job, but, it, you know, it's just a lot of work. And so it, in um, Bath, uh, they have the capacity to build a destroyer a year, maybe more. Um, but without a, a you know, without a stable demand in the future, they're not going to make any capital investments that would help them to sustain that capacity. So, yeah, we, we definitely can't lose any capacity at this point um, because we need not only for construction, but also repair. If, you know, if there's a if there is some kind of major fleet action and we have to do a lot of uh, ship repair, well, we're going to need to send those to the construction yards in a lot of cases like we did with the Fitzgerald and McCain. We've talked so far in this conversation, Brian, about bending metal primarily, but you wrote yeah. to me recently 
um, that high-tech industries, the military depends on, you wrote, like computer chips and batteries are also facing capacity challenges. We hear all the time, of course, about uh, computer chips and how that's impacting the automotive industry and many others uh, because of COVID. How is that hitting the Navy specifically in your mind? And what, if anything, can the service do about it or the Pentagon more broadly do about it to try to remedy it? Yeah, so the uh, so the chip shortage, you know, is affecting everybody today, uh, particularly at the high end. So the most, you know, um, the most sophisticated chips are built almost entirely in Taiwan and Korea. Um, and uh, during COVID, de- you know, demand kind of went down for those. They, t- you know, they they dialed back production, went to some other things, and now when when uh, demand ki- comes back up, they're not ready to ship because there's not there's no excess capacity. Um, even worse, though. Um, the kinds of chips that the military needs and the Navy needs, they're not that leading edge, you know, chip, you know, they're like in the mid range. They're like chips that were new about 20 years ago. uh, And now they're just still being built because you can, you want the reliable chips that you, that you've got a proven track record with. Um, Well, those chips are built in the United States and in Japan, you know, for the most part, and some are built in Korea. Um, You know, those chips uh, during COVID, um, you know, the demand went down. Uh, those companies went to build other kinds of chips for other appliance makers or, or uh, other customers. And, and now as demand comes back up and the, when the Navy comes in to try to get chips for their systems, they're having to wait in line behind, you know, the guys who are building microwaves and the guys who are building cars uh, because, you know, the, the demand, the, the excess capacity just isn't there. So, so to fix that, we really got to think about how to uh, bring more of that, you know, chip making capacity back to the United States. And what we've been you know, arguing is we need to incentivize kind of the back end of that. So how do we, uh, provide incentives to chip makers so that they can uh, be competitive on a cost basis for, for what they sell. Um, there's a lot of arguments on the Hill right now about just give them grants to go build a chip fabrication plant in Arizona or Texas or wherever. Um, the problem with that is you don't know if you're ever going to get a return on that investment. So if you if you force them to come up with their own capital and, and incentivize the back end, that, that's probably a much more effective way to get that capacity. But, but either way, we've got to generate more capacity to build chips. Uh, because you can see right now, we just don't have any flex in the system. We're just about out of time, Brian, but isn't there enough incentive for the builders who are building the systems that the government needs, that the Navy needs in particular, to figure out that supply chain instead of the Navy or Congress or the government more broadly having to do it? Yeah, there is, generally, and that's why, that's why we think you know, there should be incentives you know, focused on you know, uh, trying to make, a, make the cost differential between the U.S. and the foreign manufacturers closed. So, so, so chip makers in the U.S. can sell chips at a competitive price, and then they can go out and get the capital to go build the chip plants because there's plenty of demand. There's no lack of that. Uh, and the government really should be spending most of its money on the future and trying to you know, do the R&D necessary for the next generation of chips where we can maybe have a first mover advantage in the United States and have those built in the USA instead of having that built primarily overseas. Brian Clark, thanks very much as always. Great to talk to you, my friend. Thanks a lot, Francis. I appreciate it. You can read more about the new Navy secretary at fedscoop.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on tomorrow's program, at least one continuing resolutions likely for the beginning of fiscal 2022 next month. The Defense Department has actually gotten good at CR planning. Elizabeth Field of the Government Accountability Office will tell you what your agency can learn from the Pentagon on Thursday's Daily Scoop podcast. It debuts at 4 p.m. Thursday at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The National Science Foundation saving thousands of hours a year by automating tasks its employees used to do by hand. 
Robotic process automation is only one tool in the CIO's toolbox at NSF. Dorothy Aronson is chief information officer there. She's a 2021 FedScoop 50 nominee in the federal leadership category. Dorothy, welcome. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the Daily Scoop podcast. How did you start the initiative to deploy robotics process automation, and how did you analyze what the potential uses were at NSF? Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, the project really initiated in the budget area, in the budget and finance area, uh, when a tool was brought to our attention that they wanted to use to connect. They do a lot of manual um, movement of data between various automated systems, and robotic process automation uh, is the perfect mechanism for automating those repetitive tasks. So the, the initiative started there as, as a pilot, and we adopted it centrally after that and began to uh, advertise the capabilities to a broad range of people. Uh, of course, the internal IT shop picked up on it right away and started making automations. And, and that was followed by the most interesting example I have is a person who was not a software developer had an idea for how to automate a particular task that she saw happening around the agency. And she worked with our team to construct a solution. That's the big bang solution that really helped us save tens of thousands of hours. Um, since then, we've tripled our number of, of what we call automations here at NSF. Uh, and still it's growing much faster in the budget area and in the IT solutions area than it is uh, in the customer end user um, uh, venue. But what I really like to imagine is that like Excel, you know, like Excel replaced calculators and people adopted that tool so readily that they became really uh, accountants and they were creating applications without thinking about that that was what an application was. I think the same thing's going to happen with products like uh, uh, that create automations and people will be able to create local little friends that they'll keep on their desktop that will do various tasks for them. And I, I think that the software that people are providing for automations right now is not yet simple enough for the typical end user, but we're getting there. They know, the industry knows that that's where to go. So I'm really uh, hoping to empower end users with tools like robotic process automation as we move forward. What I think is important about what you've done there, Dorothy, is you've taken the technology intimidation out of it for people who aren't tech people, it sounds like. I mean, you use the term little friends for describing these things instead of RPAs or bots or any of the technical terms. And you used a, another term that I think is interesting. When you had that first capability, you advertised that. That's also not a technology, that's marketing, it sounds like, is what you did there, right? Yes, yeah, so I'm very interested in, uh, due to the rapid growth of uh, technology and the continuous change in this environment, uh, and also the, in the inclusion of data, the explosive power of data, uh, I believe that everyone has to be data savvy and everyone has to be able to use the tools that they have in hand. So my favorite example is that everyone is using, when you, when, when you drive from place to place, uh, everyone uses these automated mapping tools uh, without even thinking about it. I was in the car with my daughter the other day and we were going home from someplace that was five miles from our house where she was, grew up and she asked her phone how to get there. And I mean, it's ridiculous. So, so I think that all of our tools should be like that. 
all of our tools should be so intuitive and we can, um, that, that we can develop our own solutions. There's also emerging capabilities like low-code and no-code solutions that take uh, where, uh, where, where robotic automation gives you a stepwise solution. Low-code and no-code tools give end users the ability to imagine systems and rapidly implement that, those. So I, I see a, a dramatic change in the responsibility of the central IT shop and a, because they are not going to have to be translating user requirements into business applications. The customers can do that themselves and the central IT shop can be providing the platforms like the UiPath tool, like the low-code, no-code solutions with the customers, everyone, being empowered to create their own solutions. All right, you mentioned data, Dorothy, and data obviously is a hot-button issue all across government. What are you doing at NSF to ensure the quality of the data that you already have that's existed for a long period of time so that it intermingles well with the data that you're collecting now since we know that we're in this this data decade basically and and beyond and you know that you're matching stuff up correctly and that that things work well that is such a difficult if i could solve that problem <laughs> you know i would i would really uh be famous uh what what i believe is that defining data quality is a lot like defining beauty where i mean really uh it, it's there's not one specific bar. Uh, there's not one specific set of check a checklist that says that this data product has appropriate quality. It, it, it's up to the person using the data to make some uh, judgment about that. My responsibility, uh, I feel in this area, is to do the best thing I can defining the quality of the data as it exists today. So that legacy data was not collected in order to do data analytics, but we need to use it for that. So the thing that I'm working on is uh, defining it, defining its the strengths and weaknesses of the existing data. And then it is very important to be able to link it to the new data that's coming in. So that uh, that's also about describing how you've done it because it's not gonna be perfect. If you're using intelligent algorithms to link old data to new data, you're taking some risk. But the end user using that result has to understand what the level of that risk is and make their own determination. So my job here, I feel, is transparency. It's about explaining what the data really is, explaining how it was uh, transformed, and then explaining the, the end product has to have enough text around it so that the user can understand what they're looking at. Um, we're just about out of time, but you wrote me a note before in, in advance of this conversation, and you wrote one of the most important things that you think is remaining flexible as things change. Again, not an IT concept at all. That's a that's a management or a cultural issue that you're pointing Absolutely. out there is something that's important. Absolutely. Flexibility is uh, key to uh, success, I believe. In, uh, it, it always has been, uh, but now I think, I think more and more frequently. So if you think about, uh, you know, I always like to talk about myself, you know, my career, I did not, I started out as an accountant, uh, technology uh, in, in the eighties, technology became an important, I, I sort of moved over to technology because that was what was necessary at the time. I became eventually the, the chief information officer. And when the need for a chief data officer came up, I was not expert at data and I am still not a data scientist, but you know, it's okay because I can offer other capabilities other than that. And I took that opportunity only because uh, there was a hole that needed to be filled. And so I feel like 
we all need to be able to change our own direction at the blink of an eye uh, so that we can survive in a world that's changing faster and in ways that we can't anticipate. Dorothy Aronson, great to see you. Thanks for coming on the program. I appreciate it. Thank you. You can vote for Dorothy or any of our FedScoop 50 nominees at fedscoop.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. You can subscribe to get the Daily Scoop podcast everywhere you get your shows, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and many more places. Elizabeth Field of the Government Accountability Office is on the show tomorrow to talk about continuing resolutions. Until then, I'm the host of the program, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.